and welcome to the Art Monthly Talk Show. I'm Chris McCormack, and tonight I'm joined by Sarah Jory, who is a creative practitioner based in London and one-third of the curatorial peer support network Res. Virginia Wiles, who is a writer, her feature Decolonizing the Canon is also in the September issue of Art Monthly, and Jack Smurthwaite, who is a writer and curator based in London. Uh, just a huge thank you for joining tonight on this wet October evening. Uh, Jack will be discussing Dave Beach's new book, uh, Art and Post-Capitalism, published by Pluto Press. Virginia Wiles will be discussing the work of Bani Abidi, who uh, she interviewed as part of her uh, recent show at the Gropius Bau in Berlin. Uh, but first, uh, let's start with Sarah, um, whose feature uh, in this month's issue looks at the nature of role play and the history of it. Uh, and diagnoses the complexity of today's LARPs, uh, which are live-action role-plays. Um, of course, each LARP has its own variations, but I wondered if we could start by perhaps finding a little overview of what these perform event, performance events are and how they are conducted. So maybe just start with, like, you know, what, what might a viewer or a participant might expect um, within a LARP? Yeah. I think that's a nice opener. Um, well, there's lots of different types of laps, um, but some of the basics of the experience would be uh, that you're entering a space which doesn't have an audience. Um, the time that you spend in that space, whether it's a whole weekend or four or five hours, it's usually 50-50 split between actually workshopping what you might be playing in the second half and then playing it. And then at the end, there's also a debrief where you spend some time unpicking the whole experience as a group together. Okay. Um, there's Nordic types of LARP, which are based without so much traditional historical references. And then there's things on the other side of the spectrum, like historical reenactments, which are a little different and kind of self-explanatory, I think, to some degree. And you call those, they're called boffer LARPs. Boffer yes. LARPs, which yeah. is referring to the sword. Yeah, like a fake sword is a boffer sword. Yeah. I did not know that. And you mentioned uh, Nina Pope and Karen Guthrie, who I guess familiar to many listeners uh, for their work uh, reenacting the sort of Tudor movement or Tudor period in their work um, and you're kind of interested in well you talk about the ways in which those historical LARPs in effect can often you feel somewhat distant to them do you want to talk about why yeah I mean I can only talk from my personal experience yeah. but I don't they don't resonance with when it res resonance they don't resonate with me because um, I don't want to reenact some of those behavioral uh, kind of the oppression of a religious and feudal society at that time is not something that I feel like uh, reenacting is is necessarily analysing in an interesting way. And there's definitely ways that you can change that experience by putting uh, analysis on it in a separate way. And actually, um, the artists that you mentioned did do that in some degree. There was a blog that ran alongside mm -hmm. that project, um, and they kind of unpicked it through discussion as well as just taking part in reenacting. Um, but I do think that it's like something to be said for being wary of just like bringing something back into contemporary culture, which actually we can move away from. We mm -hmm. don't need to look at this again. And so by doing that, there's other artists that are more, let's say, taking a more abstract or less, let's say, depicting moments of history and offer very different experiences. Um, yes. Do you want to just light on one? I mean, you mentioned the Nordic style. So let's start with that. That's Nina Essendrop that you talk about. Should we talk, talk about her work and how that may, you know, how that functions? Of course, yeah. I mean, that's a good example of a work where um, there aren't even humans necessarily that you're playing. Like it moves completely away from the potential to be reenacting stereotypes because you're not taking on a character that's someone else that you, you know, you're imagining in your mind another human that you don't really know the essence of their their life. 
um, and you're asked to reenact it, that's an experience that I'm slightly wary of. Whereas in Nina Essendrop's work, um, you are, you know, like a shape or a, a kind of non-specific being mm-hmm. that has certain characteristics put on, um, which might be something as simple as like the way that you walk, like you have like a specific like ankle connected to your knee kind of thing going on. And that's like the basis for building some kind of experience uh, of your character. So it's your how you feel as a body in that shape that shapes how you're going to uh, interact with the space, the play space that she's she's making. Um, and in that in that regard, then, is it based in a nonverbal way or how are those things unfolded? I is is that are those, you know, are those actions relayed to you or are they found through your own movements or mm-hmm. is it Nina instructing those? How are they found in terms of the experience? Yeah, Nina does a lot of nonverbal work. Um, so within the workshops, even she tries to keep people away from using words after a certain point. Uh, words are used for asking specific questions so in relation to kind of safeguarding of that space making sure everyone understands how to enter it and how to get out of it if they want to you know whether there will or will not be cameras in there that kind of thing is verbally um, actively consent is drawn from that but when you're building the workshop with the characters there's no words used in that and she uses things like um, scraps of paper with words written on them um, to put things into the space where she doesn't even have to use verbal words herself. Um, and so what words might be on those pages? Just as an idea. Sorry to ask. No, no, not at all. <laughs> <laughs> cast your mind back. I'm trying to cast my mind back to when I did her LARP uh, at The Smoke, which is this this LARP festival that happens in London every year. Okay. Um, and I last participated the year before last and did Nina's LARP White Death. Um, and I think... On the pieces of paper, there were words written about uh, how you felt at that time, whether it was like trapped or uh, free or constrained or, uh, yeah, happy or sad. So quite kind of simple emotional kind of states. Sort of triggers that then would be enacted by whoever was finding those particular words. Yeah, and I seem to remember you could even exchange them. So if you weren't happy with the one that you found, you could swap it for another one so you could find the one that resonated with yourself. And so these participatory events then unfold either consensual or degrees of where we stand in terms of consensuality. Is that perhaps yes. the bearing of some of these logics? And artists obviously are consciously aware of those lines that are being drawn or crossed in some of these works, perhaps more than others. Do you want to talk about some of the ways in which uh, the fallout or what is called bleed yeah. Um, is enacted or cared for or found, etc. In these pra- in these practices. Yeah, I mean, uh, in LARP that's existed before artists started working with it, uh, mechanisms like the debrief um, and body systems, where you participants might be paired with another uh, player uh, after the game to be able to continue to unpick their experience, um, were used to make sure that things that you experienced in the game were thoroughly discussed when you were back outside of your character mm. so that anything that you might have felt uh, unrust with with your character and that particular other character that you were working with, you could then go into the non-play space and say, hey, actually, I'm sorry, we had that game fight in the, in the, in the game, but, you know, actually you're a nice person and it's just in the game. So um, it's kind of like a mechanism that's been brought into a lot of the artists' work who were working with LARP in the art world at the moment but not all and um, 
I think there are some questions directed at artists who don't use it as a as a safety mechanism because it has left uh, situations where people have kind of walked away without pleasant experiences, mm. um, which happens in the arts, and we're getting more accountable, but it it's a problem. Yeah, and I guess to a degree, it's the nature of uncomfortability as a point to find a way of clarification yeah. or even to push push people outside of some of their well comfort zones really that's why it's uncomfortable um and in a way it's provoking people to feel some sort of different kinds of subjectivities or is that yeah what's I'm, at stake i think so i think there's a few different there's lots of different ways of using larp and role play um and one of the ones that i wrote about was uh techniques that uh come from Forum Theatre, which is Augusto Boal's mm-hmm. techniques, which is actually separate to LARP. It's not, then they didn't, uh, they weren't like de- developed together or anything. Other, yeah. yeah, but lots of people who are using um, theatre techniques within their work draw on both. Mm. Um, Augusto Boal's techniques were never used for recreation. They were used for particularly to seek social justice. Um, and there's never a static audience for that. So participants... I mean, this is like LARP, actually. The participants are the, you know, the players are playing for their own experience. They're not playing for an audience to watch and kind of enjoy a, a, a performance. But in uh, Theatre of the Oppressed and particular for, particularly Forum Theatre, you're replaying scenarios which are experiences of oppression from the people in the room. So I think one of the key things to draw in here is that you're not assuming someone else's experience of oppression but you're taking on your own experience and as a participant saying let me replay this in this space and together we will skill share and open it up to uh, reacting it out under um, ideas that come from the other people in this room so it's kind of it's traumatic because you're re-entering often traumatic experiences by doing this and that's maybe what you're referring to in terms of this like uncomfortable space like after I did that workshop with um you should see the other guy and concrete action there was um a sense where I felt a bit like oh what where's the debrief like how do we unpack this and actually the moment of activity I think for that is when you go away and you take it on into your psychology Mm -hmm. and change as a kind of a human and as as the way that you operate in the world and that's how that one acts out mm. um, but it's not used as entertainment and that's like the key uh, difference I think yeah and it's sort of interesting to think of Augusto Boal because he comes from the context of the 1970s and also of Brazil and how that's inscribed in his politics surrounding that time um, I just think it's important to kind of clarify in a way his background as much as you know because largely I'm guessing LARPs are from the context of this feature largely coming out of a European or U.S. context is exactly. that right to say? Um, I mean, it's interesting the uh, the notion of provocation in that regard. Then, in, in terms of the politics around that, and how far politics can be driven by LARPs. Um, yeah. You mentioned mm-hmm. you did touch upon the, you, the sort of activist nature of you should see the other guy and housing rights activist concrete action. Yeah. Um, can we talk a little bit about? specifically more about what they've done in terms of those areas yeah um so they've actually been working more recently um uh on housing campaigns such as radical housing network and focus e15 um so with these groups to uh role play um kind of uh 
inviting architects, uh, housing justice uh, related uh, people who are working with housing justice. So we've got displaced people, people living in social housing, architects, so everyone who's kind of working and trying to live uh, in areas which are being changed by regeneration that's going on around them. Um, and there's a disjunct between the people who are living there and the people who are trying to organize that space and the languages which are used and the shared knowledges between them. Um, and therefore the two groups of people can't communicate mm -hmm. and um, access what they need. So the, so there's um, some recent work that they've been doing where the participants were role-playing things like um, one of them was... Uh, brought their experience of trying to access temporary accommodation to the space and uh, living in proximity to violence. And another play that they brought into that forum theatre space was uh, taking, uh, talking to a housing officer and the police and not being able to get the support they needed. So you can kind of picture um, three or four people role-playing that exchange, mm. pausing it, or um, and then standing back and saying... Um, have you got any ideas about how that conversation could have happened that would have like had uh, better agency at getting what you needed to mm. have access to housing? Um, so they're really putting a lot of time into researching techniques and mechanisms to be able to do this through uh, exchanging um, skill sharing and sharing spaces and bringing different um, kind of ways of speaking and into the same space to kind of build up a better network of communication, like access. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I can see the sort of the uses of that, certainly in the applications of that um, historically as well, in terms of how one prepares uh, to face um, any kind of uh, scenario that is perhaps uh, unknown or perhaps leads one into something that's uncomfortable, not to use the word uncomfortable again, but just something mm -hmm. that's perhaps un you're unprepared for. Um, and I guess is that is that part of the use value then of a LARP? Is that one of the key, perhaps, strengths of it? Yeah. yeah. Um, I think that there's so much potential for it to be used in that way. And there's many experiences, uh, many times that it has been. Um, uh, there's some work that Sophie Chapman and Kerry Jeffries have recently made. I mentioned their work, um, Behavioural Training for Astronauts, oh, yeah. um, in the article, but they've actually been working up in Beaton near Leeds recently. Um, on a bigger kind of residential commission that uh, took them to recruit some actors who brought uh, their own range of experiences of living in the area. So it was kind of actors from anything like they'd just taken part in GCSE kind of uh, theatre or they were looking for paid jobs. Um, and together uh, it was a kind of co-creation of uh, different scenes that they were playing together um, so for that space and the way that Sophie and Kerry used it up in Beaton, I think it was a really useful tool for um, actors who didn't who didn't have work at the time to come together to talk about their area, but also to find a way to use their interest in acting to connect to their experience of uh, living in the area in a way that otherwise is sometimes separated, I think, like the job and the individual. So LARP kind of brings these two things together where because you're not necessarily producing something that someone else has scripted for an audience, it's more about expressing something within yourself that you want to share. Um, and I think that can be quite a key, key thing for people to, uh, like you were saying, build up skills for sharing 
themselves with other people and what they need and then learning how to articulate what they need, basically. And I guess this forms, I mean, we talked a little bit just beforehand and I was sort of interested in the nature of how this separate or is is in a way different to something like improv um, or other kinds of theatre where, you know, one's either kind of, you know, on the spot kind of just riffing on something. Mm. And in a way, although that conjures a certain degree of freedom uh let's say Mm -hmm. in a fictional sense larp somewhat different yeah i mean the key differentiation i think is that there isn't an there isn't an audience in larp Mm. so uh the performance is for your own enjoyment as a participant um and then maybe to extend on for the reaction for the person that you're maybe playing a scene with Mm -hmm. um and i think that's a really key uh reason why it's interesting for me because there's so rarely a space within the art um, our industry where you're not where an artist isn't working for a greater audience and um, it's also something that's actually quite difficult to uh, kind of bring into uh, art spaces because programs have pressures for documenting things, turning things into films, taking photos that you can put in the pages of Art Monthly for yeah, instance. I was going to say about that in a sense I mean that, that creates a conflict perhaps. Yeah, exactly there is a com- there's definitely a conflict there and it does bring in uh, these ethical questions where artists end up um, putting cameras in the faces of the people who are LARPing and from some perspectives you'd say that's going to change the experience of um, mm. not playing for an audience if you're part of the part of that LARP for instance um, but the pressure is there and that's something that's like uh, sy- uh, symptomatic of the industry I think. What becoming more so do you mean in terms of how these practitioners are aware of how yeah. They can function in terms of creating images around their practices. Yeah, I think. Yeah, I think there's. It's definitely meant that people have had to th- think about different ways of documenting their practice. And um, something that I like using is things like anecdotes um, and uh, notes taken from mm-hmm. individuals at the end of games. Um, but also, what, to just to think about what happens if. Uh, an art space hosts an experience which is only experienced by the people in that room and then mm. they walk out and I mean maybe a little bit like you some people might be familiar from Tino Segal's work um, where you there's that's not written down or documented anywhere mm. it's just shared from other people telling each other what it was like to take part mm. and the power from that exchange is quite important mm. I think yeah. I think so too I think that's an interesting way to draw a line there for the time being. Um, yes, uh, more to discuss there, but um, we'll move on and we'll move to Virginia. You there, Virginia? Yes. 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 And uh, in a way, it's kind of interesting to think about the anecdotal uh, coming from that um, to Barney, Barney Abidi's work because there is a degree of the anecdotal informing some of her observations um, looking at uh, both Indian and Pakistani life uh, that her works largely sort of focus on in a way. Um, you went to see the recent show at the Gropius Bau in Berlin, which might still be on. I'm not too sure of the no, dates. No, finished. Uh, okay, I think in uh, yeah about a month ago. But she's showing now in Sharjah. Yes, that's right at yeah. the Art Foundation there. So. Yes, and uh, also there's a plan for it going somewhere else. Yes, yes. So she's a um, Pakistani artist who moved from. 
Lahore. Sorry, can you hear me? <laughs> Get to the microphone, Virginia. She, she, did, her, she did her first uh, part of her degree in Lahore at the National College of Art and then eventually did a postgraduate in Chicago. And that's where she started. She shifted to video and uh, uh, she had originally been a painter and a printmaker. And the, it was really, she talks about the whole notion of diaspora and of being outside of her own culture and remembering incidents and uh, living in a community that was made up of Indians and mm. Pakistanis that made her suddenly want to communicate f memories of her past, her childhood, but also recently in a very different way from the sort of work that was going on around her. She was being highly uh, stirred by the filmmaking that she was saw was going on in Chicago and the experience of being able to see all sorts of experimental films. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, she brings to her filmmaking an incredible freshness that comes out of improvisation and strikes you as being totally... It is to do with anecdotes, and yet the extraordinary thing is that it's all staged. So uh, that's why it's, I th there is a link in what you've been talking about, because uh, I think it's fascinating, the notion of how to sustain a sort of social activist art-making with a community in a way that is based on fleeting examples, but then wants to interact in a stronger way. And uh, she found that it was easier, really, eventually, to plan uh, her, her, her works. But they come across, because she filmed among, in crowded situations uh, and in slowly realised that she could use the crowd around and invited people to join, and as she said... There's nothing they love more than being joined, than joining into an apparent film that's being made. You know the thrill of it. Mm. So she grabbed that and used it. And that that kind of uh, technique is uh, well. She she owes it to several cine, uh, cinematographers. She talks very much, in particular, of. Um, uh, one tremendous influence on her by... Mm, can't uh, she mentions Elias Suleiman. Yes, yeah, Suleiman. Yeah. Um, and, the Palestinian uh, filmmaker. Yeah, absolutely, how important he was for her. And then uh, several others that she, she mentions that she'd seen as a student. But she also collaborates with writers, Mohammed Mah uh, Hanif, who wrote The Case of Exploding Mangoes. If you haven't read it, read it. It's hilarious, extremely funny and intensely political. And so her short films, they're all very small and short, are political, but they're based on every uh, observation of everyday life and particularly the notion of waiting, of... Uh, being made to wait, uh, mm. the notion of how a ritual is comes about being through oppression by uh, the, the, the 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 powers of the structure around you. And yeah, I so, think, yeah, sorry, I was yeah. just saying that I remember the one work of hers, Reserved, which yes. particularly has the sense of waiting. Yes, uh, with those reserved seats while we're waiting for the, uh, I think a cult, uh, sort of cavalcade, the sort of politicians arriving in stretch limos. 
to yes. the to the destination, and they, they, I don't think they ever seem to arrive. <laughs> yes, they they never really <laughs> arrive. It's a real waiting for Godot, but yeah. it's a kind of um, moment for her, which she plays with, and she plays beautifully in a fusion of of her observation of um, that she is partly remembered but partly observed all the time of the reactions of kids, of people of every generation in this state of tension. Um, but at the same time, she it's partly contrived. So it's this... What I find fascinating is this fusion of uh, chance, which I asked her about at the end of the interview, that she seizes, and, and of staging, mm -hmm. which is meticulously done, really. And can we talk a little bit, because it's an interesting uh, retrospective at the Gropius Bow, because as you open your interview with, she mm. starts actually with her oldest work, which is quite a surprise in many ways. Yes, uh, for the, the For viewers, you know, you're seeing all this work as you go through, and then actually the end of the show, we see the very earliest works, which yes. it's an interesting format. Can we talk about those particular early works and how they really led, uh, yeah. or, you know, really kind of show the beginnings of her practice, really? Well, they were phenomenal because they were done uh, in a very short time and very intensely. And, in fact, they were done uh, in Chicago, but just after early days of being there, having left uh, Pakistan. And the whole game is the contrast and the play between Pakistan and India, which is the continuing tension. And that's why the decision was to play those again, because of what's mm -hmm. happened in the last few months that I witnessed while, uh, while I was there, because I work, I teach, I work in both India and Pakistan, and that kind of tension is becoming grotesque. So now the artists on either side of the border cannot move, cannot cross the border. No, but, you know, it's... Uh, it's I'm just I'm saying the artist because that's the world I've been working with, but it's it's in, incredibly tense for everybody, and it's getting worse with Modi modification as I call it um, in India and not really being resolved in the reaction from Pakistan, and so she wanted to play with that in with humour because of, out, above all her films are funny and I haven't really communicated that, but. The, and so the first one, Mangoes, is a very simple idea of two women, she plays both, it's a double screen, slightly differently dressed, very, very slightly, uh, how to eat a mango. Mm. And, uh, uh, and there's, there's very little difference, but they're talking as they eat, and it slowly builds up this kind of uh, idea of of uh, rivalry, really, uh, which neither of them want to participate in. They're, they're, you know, they obviously think it's absurd, but it's there. It's conduced by the social conflict that's going mm -hmm. on. And um, so that, that was brought back because of the, um, uh, as she said, the reverse chronology was important because of the political time, really. Mm -hmm. And um, then everything that's going on since uh, since um, Kashmir, that intervention in Kashmir. And then she did the news, which was hilarious in 2001, where it's simply reading the news by two different newsreaders, a Pakistani woman and an Indian woman, and the way the same news is framed mm. differently. 
So it's very subtle. Yeah, and in a way, I think it's important to talk about the. She does address the subject of the partition as well. Um, yes. And that, that particular, how that forms the kind of backbone really for these tensions that are yes. being played out. I think, as she says, it's, uh, I think it's the. Um, I do feel that the partition has, uh, can never be spoken about enough. It was just so brutal. Absolutely. Um, so I think, you know, we should maybe, met, you know, raise that as part of, you know, her kind of agenda, really. Um, yes. yes. You follow that with uh, the hands belting uh, phrase that uh, was raised in a, in a symposium, I'm guessing, during the, yes, during, the work, or during the opening of the show, where he says, video is the prime material of globalization. Yes. And I think it's speaking about how she shifted from painting to video. I guess that's why you, you chose to land on that subject. Is that... Yes, yeah. yes, absolutely. And as she then goes on to say how uh, video was the, and especially using um, uh, iPhones and cameras and uh, easily, was used in various different cultures because of uh, the tension. And so there's this sort of urgency from social networks about all well, the transition. And so for her, that was why she went into that. But she also says, and she's always playing on this slight ambiguity, that it wasn't particularly for a main political reason. For her, the use of using that form of work was to be able to communicate with mm. her people from the States to back to her homeland. And she did manage that because she the shorts won prizes in Karachi, and that's why she started to have uh, her audience, which is in Karachi. Yeah. But then she moved to Berlin, and that's where her work has really flourished because of the surrounding the environment and the, um, the easier manner of working than for her to do in Pakistan mm. is slightly difficult. So it's interesting that she's like, uh, in terms of the political context from which she now works. But mm. um, can we talk a little bit? I mean, you mentioned one work that you liked a great deal, which was uh, Death at a 30 degree angle, which was shown, I think, yes. a documenter in 2012. Um, can we talk a little bit about that work? Cause it actually is quite, kind of pinpoints numerous elements in her, her, yes. her career. Yes, it's extraordinary because it's a very complex uh, film. Um, with uh, uh, um, a lot of use of her use of repetition, her play with time is 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 extraordinary. So it's either extended, arrested, or repeated, and um, and she says that uh, she tries to always work in a short way, but she's very interested in the notion of sustaining the regard of the spectator in order to make them a, a durational performance to make people think. And um, so this death at 30 degree angle is a very, uh, it's two vertical videos. It's only 13 minutes long, but it's all filmed in a, a studio with this uh, strange, I suppose he's about 75, a sculptor, Ram Sutab, who became very well known for doing monolithic heroic sculptures. Okay. So that was, for her, right material for de her deconstruction of those political figures. Mm -hmm. And um, she said that's why she used the studio, because it was so rich and it had so many complex angles and objects and behaviours, almost sort of like Orientalist objects. 
Um, and then every scene, as she said, was short scripted and pre-planned. But then she takes ages to edit, and she she never knows how long it is. And this title of the film came from um, when the Saddam Hussein sculpture that we all saw falling mm. in films at that time, and it got stuck. I don't know if you remember it, it, it as it was being pushed and it was absurd but so she called it uh, death at a 30 degree angle which was uh, she made up that then <laughs> um, but she she did it with these angles taken from below in Riefenstahl style, style that she mentions and the whole idea to make the politicians look even more grotesque sort of l l ridiculous uh, looming from above and um yeah, so that was, I found, perhaps the most interesting. They all are for different reasons, but that was the most complex one. It was made for Documenta, and I'd seen it in Documenta. In, uh, it needs very ideal conditions, and that's why it's difficult to show. Yeah, and I guess, you know, would you say then the satiricism that runs through, or the satirical nature of mm. uh, Bani Abidi's work is one of the defining features of it in a way and it, how she plays that is often through the most sort of I wouldn't say it's not necessarily comical but it is mm. these gestures that are mm. sort of absurdist and she kind of highlights or kind of almost reframes reframes that in order to kind of really puncture what we consider to be the general rules I guess of of what we're seeing um, is that yes absolutely yeah. and and I think what's very interesting is in her uh, her references she goes back to skits that she saw on telly when mm. she was a teenager and there was a whole very intense series and I've seen excerpts on them of tremendous satire which you it's hard to find today on Pakistani television let alone on British television uh, uh, and they were short and acute and uh, acerbic and so she models a lot of her work on that it's very much the notion of a almost um, knee-jerk reaction through satire, through comedy, through folk imagery. and um, uh, But at the same time, she's using... Um, there's, a, there's, a, there's a... If you... Throughout it all, there's a kind of love for the people involved. Mm. And she uses her family, her mother plays in it, her, her, her siblings... Um, so it's 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 quite extraordinary, and she says, "I'm not a radical feminist, although you know, which she's she's never been described as being a radical feminist." And she says something which I found a bit. Uh, she says, um, uh, "Because I wanted to bring up the influence of the feminists in Pakistan that yeah. were so strong, and um, who are my generation. Yeah, so she is, yeah. you know, twenty years younger than I." more than 20 years younger, I think. <laughs> and, and, they, and she said a very funny re reply um, that, yeah, they were strong, but they weren't taking up class issues, which actually, yeah, on reflection, I think was that. absolutely yeah. just yeah. in her comment. And she said they weren't taking on their own fathers or husbands or asking why women couldn't be members of the local club. Now you've got younger feminists chanting, how do I know where your socks are? And they're taking on men. But she said, I'm not a crying for women kind of feminist. I'm laughing at men, laughing at power. And that's her, her very strong uh, statement, really. Um, but so, 
Uh, yeah, it's very interesting the, in the last part how we come on to her, the fact that she is uh, Shiite and that that um, is an area of discussion which is very delicate in, in Pakistan and across is Muslim cultures and that she feels very strongly that um, this has to be opened up more. And in the, uh, it was brought up by somebody in the symposium and you could feel a kind of hush by others, oh, no, we don't want to talk about this, don't have to bring this into art-making. But she felt uh, it was important and that she says, as I believe everyone's intellectual universe has to be acknowledged without being taken for a radical Muslim because there is this split uh, uh, between the, the sects in Muslim thing. But it's why her last, one of her last pieces, which is beautiful, was um, Memorial to Lost Words and done in 2016. And I've seen that in the museum in Lahore, beautifully placed next to a sculpture of Queen Victoria that happens to be in the vault. <laughs> and it was um, originally commissioned by Edinburgh and they wanted her, they asked her to do um, a monument, the idea of mon a work about the idea of monuments and how ineffectual they are in terms of what they mean to people because Edinburgh is apparently called the city of statues. I didn't know that, did you? And so this, was this work actually, you said it was commissioned by Edinburgh, was it then presented in Edinburgh yes, initially? Yes, it and was. Then you, but you saw it in Lahore. Yeah, yeah, yes, yes. And what's really tremendous, because it's a sound installation, is that uh, she brought in these forgotten folk songs and oral memories that were uh, from over 100 years ago. And they were, had been, they were re related to the Great War but never written down. It was all orally transmitted. And then they were discovered by Amrit Chandan and wrote a poem, and then they were replayed for her, uh, re-sung by a choir. And as she pointed out, why she wanted to bring up back was that so many soldiers from Pakistan and India served the, for the British during both world wars, and there's hardly any record of this, not even in the Imperial War Museum. Do you have any details? Sorry to ask you on on the on the radio, but do you have any details about how Chandan discovered those archives? No, it's interesting. Um, I think he was he found them actually in Manchester. That's uh, but I, I, I yeah. I, whether, I, whether how they yes. how he came across them? Yes, interesting no, to find out. I must um, do more investigation. More investigation necessary. Good, uh, <laughs> Virginia. Thank you for that. Um, Jack, hello. Moving on, uh, we are going to discuss David Beach's new book. Oh, good. Art and post-capitalism. Are we ready for this? Um, where to begin? Uh, so the full title: Art and post-capitalism, aesthetic labor, automation, and value production. Um, this is the seeds. It seems for a larger book that is in development. Am I? Yeah, well, this is a second of what will be at least three, by the sounds of things. So okay. Uh, in 2015, um, Beach published Art and Value, which was a very in-depth uh, examination of art's exceptionalism um, through value theory. And Beach sort of immersed himself in um, the writings of value theory and um, 
sort of thought about how art does and doesn't um, fit with traditional notions of its absorption into capitalism, things like commodity fetishism and and arguments that have been used for decades and hundreds of years. Um, he's now done art and post-capitalism, and in the footnotes to this book, he references um, an upcoming work called Art and Labour, which um, is obviously um, sort of the culmination or, or sort of a, a larger work that falls out of this research published here in Art and Post-Capitalism. Great. And so this, this is laying the land a little bit yeah. of uh, where this book situates itself. Um, I guess we need to debate or kind of open up the subject around where art situates itself in relation to the subject of um, post-capitalism mm -hmm. in a way. Um, and I think you touched upon that with the sense of its exceptional values that art can somehow acquire. Um, and on the back of our freeze week, yep. perhaps <laughs> there is some sort of logic to what we're talking about mm -hmm. um, and what we've seen in terms of market and so on. Um, but perhaps I think this book goes further than that, um, I would think, yeah, in terms and of what, what it's trying to unpick. And what is quite interesting is, well, first of all, the Beach is very, um, in the introduction to this book, quite explicit about the fact that a lot of the po the literature on post-capitalism doesn't include art as part of its arg internal argumentation or even reference art um, art production as um, part of its systems of labour. And I think that's partly because it is so exceptional and difficult to categorise within those traditional notions. Um, and part of the, you know, one aspect of um, the importance of this book, I think, is the fact that it integrates it so um, integrally into um, Beach's conception of what comes after, what capitalism could evolve into or come come after capitalism. Um, and I allude to that, I th hopefully, in, in, the, um, in the review, where it is always about the, the politics of both art and um, post-capitalism, so that one is always thought in relation to the other. Mm -hmm. um, he asks, what does post-capitalism mean for a politics of art? Um, so it's, it's not about it being an afterthought. It's about um, where they intersect and what they can teach us about the other. Mm -hmm. um, and that comes also through in his um, categorization of uh, counter-tendencies. Uh, they are antagonistic um, sort of internal mechanisms that stretch the idea or the boundaries of their own internal systems. Um, and it's, it's sort of embodied through the, the text art and post-capitalism as a book is in itself working through these po these um, counter-tendencies. And in a sense, it's hard to get a grasp of some of these subjects, largely because Dave Beach rather doesn't really give many concrete examples. Certainly he shies away from really discussing art, let's say, in a real sense of like this thing I am looking at, mm -hmm. and instead rather deals with the concepts surrounding things. Um, so... 
to try and elucidate some of these subjects in a way, perhaps we could drill in a little bit on just even what a counter tendency might be and how that informs some of the subjects that Dave Beach is trying to wrestle with. Yeah. Um, it's like you say, he doesn't give any illustration or point to any particular artwork or artistic practice as something that could um, be pointed to and, and called post-capitalist art. Um, and I think off the top of my head there might only be one reference to an artwork and that's um, Burton Morisot's The Wet Nurse and even that is only used as To which work, sorry? Um, the Wet Nurse by Burton Morisot. It's a painting from the 1800s okay. I think and it's but even then it's sort of used as an example within um 70s feminist thought um fem like um, feminist reading of Marx um so yeah these counter tendencies that are um explained slightly are come out most explicitly probably when he's um in the chapters on um the politics of what he calls the politics of work um and the sort of the the counter tendencies that art poses to um, market capitalism from and he says from from guilds and academies to art art dealers that's the um, that's sort of the the lineage um, how it is exceptional um, outside of a market how it has placed itself in that in that way. Um, and also, what well, that's just—I mean—in the sense <coughs> that it can accrue a value that it situates outside normal regulations around how value is normally ascribed to an object, yeah. such as gold. Yes. Say. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and how the it uh, an artwork doesn't equate to an artwork's value doesn't equate to um, more or less value than. The wage labor put into mm -hmm. it by an artist and that's, and that's, that's connected to the genius the, the concept the, of genius yeah. per se but i feel like that's opening another another terrain can of worms of and, yeah. and I, I say in the in the review as well the 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 passing references to genius um are so obviously so invested and 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 thought through um as everything in the book is because you know uh, Earlier last year, I Genius, I Robot, his feature for Art Monthly, talks about how um, the genius of Lester accelerationism, um, and 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 what that what that means to um, what that means for the traditional notion of romantic notion of genius, being an artist that supersedes the work of a robot. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of that is implicit within what's what's written in, in art and post-capitalism but isn't um, repeated or overlaid so it's it's obvious that um, well to me at least that there's so much going on under the surface of these 160 pages there are books and books and books that could come out of it um, and I, yeah art and labor is going to be one of those um, yeah so let's try and bracket some of these thoughts here rather than uh, run around too much um, but I think we can talk a little bit about the notion then we talked you talked about robots but uh, and the relationship between genius and so on but let's because you do talk a little bit about automation and I think that gives some concrete mm -hmm. ways forward in terms of what we're talking about I think Sorry. Um, <laughs> Just and the ways in which uh, yeah uh, labor 
effectively has been facilitated by various technologies, you know, and I think we can, literal examples would be the dishwasher in the 1950s, 60s, and so on, um, and how that sort of alleviated one's sense of time and labor and uh, pleasure and leisure. Um, do you want to pick up on how he sort of unpicks that in his book? Let's do that. Yes. Um, the latter half of the book is giving over to automation and what he calls the technologies of rest. Um, I, I think sort of as a criticism of certain um, thought, uh, sort of schools of thought on the left, such as left accelerationism um, and fully automated luxury communism, whereby um, sort of technologies can be used outside of the confines of currently occurring capitalism um, and what that what that means for the amount of time that we have for given like you say given over to to leisure um, and the roboticization of um, uh, a f sort of facilitating a freedom mm -hmm. um, I think part of the and again with all of his um, sort of research and writing um, he thinks about that politically and and whether or not it can be implemented on the on in society as it stands um, and whether or not there are sort of discrepancies and inconsistencies in 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 applying this these these technologies to uh, an unknown unknown future part of uh, what he says is that the like the unbalanced infrastructures around the world mean that we we couldn't um put in a a universal technology that would bring about a form of a globalized um socialism of uh extreme excess for instance mm -hmm. because that infrastructure doesn't exist and there would have to be a lot more work to um to make that viable um so in terms of the way that um those arguments are um those arguments on the left the, the accelerationism and the um fully automated luxury communism are um criticized it's not to say that they are shot down and and not part of what the the school of post capitalism is, is becoming but it's um both seen as a sort of a surveying tool to work out wh what the limits are what it can be thought what the gaps are what needs to be done next and um sort of simultaneously surveys the current landscape and the history of post capitalism thinks about what it can be and argues um very uh in a very structured way for um, how that can be progressed and what needs to be done next. Um, when you say that, I mean, I'm interested because, um, you know, on a straightforward level, you, we can all see how technology is une unequally spread across a global mm -hmm. context, you know, world. How we, you know, some people have access to more technology than another. Um, and, and predominantly, you know, we can look at how that creates further forms of inequality um how how is that addressed or is that addressed in the context of an art world is is there a way is the is Dave Beach drawing a a line here in terms of how we are thinking about these 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 history or these these realities rather um in terms of an art world practice is that 
something that's being drawn out or is that something else that's being I would say that there are diff- there there are people that are doing that and I don't think yeah. it's done in, in, in this book particularly um, because the art world practice isn't I mean, so maybe it's like Hito's Dale, I think would come to mind here in that in some of these mm-hmm. ideas, perhaps. Yeah, and the idea of um, distribution yeah. and um, a networked uh, sort of a networked reproducibility that you can um, sort of definitely pull sterile into this argument, mm-hmm. but because because of the uh, I think the the manner in which Beach criticizes these things politically, systematically. And is always thinking about them, not the way that they are. They can be implemented on the ground, like you say, a, a globalized art, art world. Um, I think that can be extrapolated from it mm-hmm. out of a conversation like this, but it's not written about okay. explicitly. Um, whereas um, something that would be criticised by Beach, something that I don't think is particularly uh, robust. And yeah, I've mentioned it a couple of times, would be the fully automated luxury communism, where yeah. they do talk about these inequalities, but sort of argue that technology, the technology will save us anyway. Like, um, if it is massively uh, unevenly distributed technologies, such as, um, you know, ho- whole uh, continental infrastructures that are lacking, they then um, certain waves within the history of technology um, communication technology especially will just be um, completely skipped yeah. so the idea of um, cell phone use and Wi-Fi being widely accessible while leapfrogging something like a landline technology mm-hmm. um, or banking infrastructure not being in place when cell phone technology would facilitate the same outcome but mm-hmm. skip a 20 or 30 year period in the middle um, but I think the cultural and social history that is gained from the, the, that uneven distribution is ignored in those in, in those left accelerationist texts whereas I think Beach is quite um, quite attuned to the importance of those um, those histories and what that means uh, um, Mm. But again, it's not explicit within the text, but I'd say that's something that is... Comes through. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Um, I feel like we could probably talk about this book for a longer time than we have. Well, I could but, talk about uh, it very abstractly, and I haven't spoken about art at all, I'm very sorry. No, I think... Um, <laughs> is it as abstract as it sounds, or is he giving... I think I'm making it a lot more complex than it needs. It is, I, I'd say, and I, I think... Um, he doesn't bring it round to contemporary times specifically, like Brexit and what's going on. No, I don't know when it was. Um, mm. I don't know when the majority of it was mm. written, but that doesn't really come through. Art and Labour might, you know, that's being written at the at the moment. <laughs> um, uh, but it does. Um, A grim note to end yeah, on Brexit. Miserable. Um, <laughs> we might, wasn't going to mention it, right? Um, Okay, but no, it doesn't. No. Well, that leaves me just to thank Virginia, Sarah, and Jack. Uh, thank you so much for your contributions, and of course, to James Austin for being our sound engineer this evening. Thank you so much for looking after us, uh, and thank you for listening. Uh, good night. <laughs>